Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenvey. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Hello, welcome back to GEMCAST. I have a new guest speaker on today, and I'm very excited about our topic. I'm here with Katie Selman. Katie is an emergency physician and geriatric emergency fellowship trained. So she is an expert. And one of her areas of interest is the topics that we are going to talk about today. We have never talked about this. So I'm very excited that she's going to talk with us about failure to thrive and frailty. Katie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with failure to thrive. We use this term pretty loosely in the emergency department. When we have a patient who maybe doesn't have a clear medical diagnosis, but we know there's something not quite right. Maybe they're losing weight. Maybe they're just not able to do their activities of daily living, but tell us a little bit more about this term and what it means. So failure to thrive originally comes from pediatrics and with children, there are certain growth parameters that you expect to meet. So there's clear criteria for failed or thrive. The problem is in adults, we don't have those same milestones and trajectories. So therefore we end up with a definition that's not as clear and varies between experts. You're right though, the definitions typically include some sort of constellation of weight loss, decreased appetite and functional decline, but also sometimes include these psychosocial aspects like depression or lack of social support. When we think about, say, an 80-year-old patient who comes into the emergency department, what are some of the presentations or signs and symptoms that we might interpret as failure to thrive? Often, the presenting complaint is going to be something nonspecific, like weakness, fatigue, decreased appetite, weight loss. Usually, when I think about it, it's not acute over the course of hours to days, but usually it's something that's been progressing over weeks or even months. A key factor that I think of is some aspect of impaired self-care, which might be the reason that they came to the ED in the first place, especially if they have family that's worried about them. Other connotations that we have of failure to thrive include social admits, patients that are unsafe to discharge back to their current situation, medically complex patients, or just patients that we don't have a clear medical reason for admission. That is so true. You know, as you begin your medical training, the patients or cases that you're most nervous about are the patients who are really sick, somebody who's peri-arrest or somebody who's septic. And then as you get on in your medical training, those are the patients that you really feel comfortable. You know how to manage it. Like I know how to manage sepsis, but what becomes more challenging are these cases or situations where it's exactly that you have a patient who doesn't meet inpatient criteria, but isn't really safe enough to go home. And, you know, it's funny. I got a call not too long ago from a former resident in the middle of the night. I happened to be the attending on call and he called in and he wanted some advice and it wasn't about some difficult crashing patient with an LVAD. It was about exactly this kind of situation where he's thinking he just needed to bounce it by someone to say, what should I do with this patient? I'm not really comfortable sending them home, but I can't really get them admitted. What should I do? So these are exactly the cases that 
occupy a lot of our time because we don't have a clear pathway for them. And it can also be very challenging to maneuver because there are social situations. Maybe we need case management to get help. You know, we can't always get patients placed into a nursing facility if they need that kind of care. So sometimes, as you mentioned, we also use the term failure to thrive when really it's more pseudo language to mean, well, it's a social admit. They just don't have social support at home. And so we can't send them home. How is the term failure to thrive sometimes problematic? Because we mean so many different things when we say failure to thrive, we create a bias in which we place patients in this category that is nebulous and suggests that they're medically complex, but they have social issues as well. And we forget that there can be other things going on. So Katie, if we have these patients who we are saying failure to thrive because we just don't know what's going on, is there evidence to see how often are there medical conditions that just haven't quite manifest themselves yet in these populations? Absolutely. One study showed that of older adults that were admitted to the hospital under this admitting diagnosis of failure to thrive, 88% of these patients ultimately had an acute medical problem, the most common of which was infectious, followed by cardiac, and the third most common was neurologic. Another study showed that over half of patients presenting with nonspecific complaints, such as weakness or fatigue, ended up developing a serious condition within 30 days of their ED visit. Wow, that's quite remarkable. So in this bucket of failure to thrive, if I'm going to rephrase that, 88% ultimately did have an acute medical problem, infectious, cardiac, or neurologic, or maybe it was just that this failure to thrive was kind of a prodrome or sentinel or harbinger of future medical problems because over half develop a serious condition within 30 days. That's really interesting. And we know we've talked about this a lot on GEMCAST and other sessions that often older patients don't have that quote textbook presentation. They're subject to polypharmacy, multimorbidity, all of which can cloud that clinical picture. So they may come in with these nonspecific symptoms, and that's just the early manifestation of either infectious, cardiac, neurologic issues, or something that's kind of brewing that they just haven't quite manifest yet. So it's important not to dismiss these nonspecific presentations. So when we're thinking about a patient that has this failure to thrive picture or constellation, what are in maybe a little bit more detail, what are the acute medical conditions or causes that we should be thinking about? Some of the acute causes are definitely cardiac ischemia. You know, is this patient having an MI or did they have an MI recently? And that caused a change in their cardiac functional status. Valvular disease, stroke, of course, is always on our differential for things like weakness, electrolyte imbalances, infection, anemia. Hypoactive delirium is the most common form of delirium and overlaps a lot of what we think of failure to thrive. Decreased activity, inattention, a kind of waxing and waning course. And if your patient has delirium, this should definitely be investigated for any underlying cause. Yeah, that's something we've talked about a lot on Chimcast is this delirium. And I wonder if just rephrasing to ourselves is this failure to thrive actually a hypoactive delirium? Now, not all failure to thrive is delirium and certainly not all delirium is failure to thrive, but there's a solid amount of overlap there. 
like you're saying with this, just not able to do their daily activities, maybe not as awake and alert as usual, not as interactive, not acting themselves. You know, when people often, it'll be an out of town family member who comes in, hasn't seen their grandmother or their parent for some time. And they say, you know, she's just not acting herself and they bring them in. I wonder if we should, when we have that failure to thrive statement in our chart or in our conversations, maybe we should just use that as a trigger to say, wait a second, is this actually hypoactive delirium? Absolutely. And delirium has a lot of the same underlying causes that we're talking about already, such as infection uh, or medication interactions and intolerances, especially if your patient is on any centrally acting medication. What are some of the other potential causes of failure to thrive? Like we've talked about before, a lot of these patients aren't always coming in with an acute presentation and it's more subacute and progressing over the past few weeks or even months. And so in that case, our differential broadens a lot to include hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, especially in our patients who have a history of chronic steroid use. Malignancy is another big one on our differential, whether it is a previously known malignancy or a brand new diagnosis, chronic anemia, even depression. In older adults, they're more likely to present with somatic symptoms such as fatigue, rather than mood changes for depression. So that's an important one to think about. Myasthenia gravis, normal pressure hydrocephalus, vasculitis and myopathies, all of these can cause this kind of failure to thrive picture. Wow. So when we're saying failure to thrive, there's actually, as you said, to jump back a couple of minutes ago, 88% of people actually have something medical going on and it could be some pretty concerning things. You know, maybe they're weak because they have a myopathy or a myositis, or maybe they're tired and fatigued because they have hypothyroidism or adrenal insufficiency, or maybe they're losing weight because they have a malignancy, or maybe they're tired because they're anemic from their GI bleed from their malignancy. So it really is worth a good solid workup for these patients. And typically we're going to get basic labs, but maybe we should just remember to, Hey, let's throw on a TSH. Maybe this is hypothyroidism, normal pressure, hydrocephalus, and some of these other things are a little harder to diagnose. Although you can at least get a CT if you're concerned about that, if they have the, you know, ataxia confusion and urinary incontinence trifecta of the normal pressure hydrocephalus, but Even as you mentioned, cardiac diseases, heart failure may present with decreased energy, anorexia, especially in older women. So if we find ourselves using this term failure to thrive, what could we use instead? Or what might be a more specific way to communicate our concerns? I think failure to thrive does not provide enough clinical information on its own, especially when we all have different definitions of it. Instead, we can work on being precise in describing our patient and their presentation. If the etiology is still unknown, describing the patient as having weakness and anorexia, rather than trying to sum that patient up as failure to thrive, can be more precise, communicates clearly with other healthcare providers, and also leaves room for the fact that there may still be an acute medical problem that we haven't diagnosed. However, if your patient has more chronic symptoms, has had many prior workups, we can also consider whether your patient is experiencing frailty. Yes. And that will be our next topic. It's really interesting to me. A lot of what we've talked about on Gemcast in prior episodes is reframing our language because our language is powerful. 
And when we call in a patient to the hospitalist or the medical team and say, oh, this is an 88 year old female who presents with failure to thrive. What we are communicating may not be what they are hearing. And for example, they may think failure to thrive is language or code speak for social admit. Whereas we mean, no, they actually are not able to manage their ADLs and they have functional decline and they have anorexia and weight loss. So it's important to think about our language. One of my favorite quotes is from George Bernard Shaw. He said, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. So we may think that we're communicating some information when we say failure to thrive, but really what they're hearing may not be what we're saying. Some of the other times that our language has come up in prior podcasts is the idea of the mechanical fall and how that is also ambiguous. And so instead of saying mechanical fall, saying non-syncopal fall, or instead of using this typical and atypical chest pain, understanding that, you know, acute coronary syndrome can have a range of symptoms and older patients don't always present with chest pain. Instead, they may present with shortness of breath or dizziness or maybe failure to thrive. So Katie, this ties into another concept, which also feels kind of vague, but actually does have a more clear definition. And that is frailty. We tend to think we will know it when we see it, you know, when we see a patient who just appears frail or maybe comes in with a fall and a hip fracture and we say, oh, it's a frail 85 year old, but what is frailty? How is it defined? Frailty, unlike failure to thrive, is much better defined geriatric syndrome. It's a clinical condition characterized by decreased physiologic reserve and increased vulnerability to stressors such that a patient can experience a disproportionate amount of change in their health, even after minor stress. In other words, they have decreased ability to bounce back from an acute illness or stress in their life. It's not normal aging, but rather a distinct entity, and is prevalent in up to one-third of older adults. The pathophysiology of frailty is not well understood, but we know that it is related to an abnormal immune activation overall loss of muscle mass, hormonal changes, and increased cortisol. Wow. So up to a third of older adults. And that's really interesting that this is distinct from normal aging because we think that, well, as we age, we get more frail and that's true in about a third of cases, but that's interesting. I actually didn't know that it was related to immune activation as well. What we do know though, is that frail adults have higher mortality worse outcomes. So a frail patient who falls and breaks a hip is going to have a worse outcome than a non-frail older patient, or if they have surgery or a cardiovascular intervention, they're going to have more complications after those procedures or after trauma. So how do we screen for this or how do I, I, do we identify it? So there's many screening tools out there. Screening typically focuses on weight loss, Although we have to be aware too, in obese adults, overall loss of body mass, lean body mass still occurs, even if there's no overall weight change, exhaustion, decreased grip strength, slow walking speed, and decreased physical activity. One screening tool that I particularly like is the clinical frailty scale. It's quick, it's straightforward, and recently it's been validated for prediction of 30-day mortality in the ED, which outperforms the emergency severity index and was independent of age, sex, or condition. It's also an independent predictor for inpatient mortality and length of stay for hospitalized patients. And is this something that people are using in the ED routinely? 
I would say that in general, it is not being used routinely, but some emergency departments have started screening for frailty using the clinical frailty scale. It's scored based on how the patient was two weeks prior to this presentation. So to really assess their baseline and focuses on their function. There's nine categories ranging from one, which is very fit, to eight, which is severely frail. And then a separate ninth category for terminally ill. There's even an app available called the Clinical Frailty Scale that walks you through administering the scale and takes only a minute or so. So how does it help us? Because of course, ER doctors are not going to do something unless it's going to change the outcome because we're busy. So even that one minute to calculate the frailty score, when should we use it? And then how is it going to actually relate to our care in the emergency department? You're so right. Frailty is a multifactorial process that we are not going to fix or reverse in the ED. However, I think that it really helps us frame a fuller understanding of our patient, their needs, the effects of what their acute medical condition is going to be and their outcomes. For example, like we talked about, frailty more accurately predicts outcomes rather than age alone. So diagnosing frailty can help us with decision-making, prognostication, and even identifying patients that really need further resources and specialty care. So if we identify frail patients, they should really be undergoing then a comprehensive geriatric evaluation, whether inpatient or outpatient, to optimize their plan of care moving forward. Well, Katie, thank you for that introduction to failure to thrive and frailty. And there's still a lot to learn about both of these conditions. Frailty care in the ED is certainly still developing. And there's some EDs, like you mentioned, that are screening older patients for frailty. But then what do we do with that information? Or does it really improve further downstream outcomes? Or what should we do when we identify a very frail patient? We still have a lot of research that we need to do. Some take-home points for me today are, first of all, when we use the term failure to thrive, that's problematic because what I'm communicating may not be what the inpatient team is hearing or may introduce bias where we are introducing the idea that this is a medically complex patient, but maybe we're only admitting them for social reasons. When in fact, 88% of patients with failure to thrive ultimately did have either an infectious cardiac or neurologic or other complaint. And there's a whole host of things that it could be that really does warrant a workup. Or maybe we should reassess and say, oh, is this failure to thrive actually delirium? And even if there's not an acute medical concern right now, over half of the patients have with these nonspecific complaints do develop a serious condition with, within 30 days. So we should be mindful of that. And then with frailty, it is not normal aging, but it is present in up to a third of older patients. These patients are going to have more difficult courses, worse outcomes. And so even though there's not necessarily anything that we can, we can't fix it, like you said, maybe being aware of it, we can help predict outcomes or prognosticate a little bit better or refer them for care for more workup of their frailty or management of it. And there's still a lot of work to be done to say, well, how do we interface with outside resources when it comes to improving frailty? Or how do we use our understanding of frailty and failure to thrive in the emergency department in a meaningful way? So Katie, thank you for introducing us to both of these topics. I have learned a lot. Thanks for being on GEMcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients. Thank you.